Hi, and welcome to Bread. This summer, we're beginning a new series that we're calling Jesus with People. And in it, we're drawing our attention to interactions that Jesus had with various groups in the book of Luke. In seeing how Jesus responds to people and how people respond to him, we see ourselves. And this helps us to be more fully aware of his presence, more fully alive, and better equipped to do his kingdom work here in our city. Take a listen. Oh man, would you like to take a seat? Joe, thank you, that was lovely. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Ed, and I lead the church with my wife Hannah. You're very welcome. Uh, we are in a series uh, on, um, in the Gospel of Luke. We're looking at Jesus with people, various different groups of people. Uh, we've done Gentiles and women, and now we are on to the sick. So uh, let me read from Luke chapter 8. This is starting at verse 40. Now, when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house, because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him, And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touch me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, Don't be afraid. Just believe and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned, And at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. Here endeth the lesson. Now, um, as many of you know who have listened to me blurb on about um, myself, which I'm very good at, uh, over the years, uh, you will know that um, I sort of came to faith really in my uh, early to mid-twenties. And a large part of that was sort of stumbling upon a church in London that was unlike anything I'd ever experienced before. My previous experiences left me basically with the idea that Christianity was kind of um, either very dull and probably kind of make-believe, or judgmental and punishing and unkind. Those were my two sort of experiences. 
But this church that I'd stumbled upon was the opposite of all those experiences. One, the people, and I was in my early to mid-twenties, uh, they were cool and um, dateable. And uh, that was a big thing for me because I hadn't seen people in church that looked like that before. Uh, but there was something I could tell about them that um, I didn't have. And I knew they had something, and it was very attractive. I couldn't put my finger on it. Uh, and then secondly, the whole thing was quite relaxed and funny, and they all seemed to have a sense of humor, and they didn't take themselves too seriously, which was very attractive to me as well. But it was all very intellectually vigorous. And clearly, everyone actually believed in this thing. They articulated the gospel in such a way that it was completely um, orthodox to the Bible, but it actually sounded like good news. My previous experience of the gospel had been, uh, repent, you're going to hell. And it was like, it's not that good news, is it? Um, <laughs> whereas this was really good news. So it was like there was this sort of triple threat on my worldview. Jesus being presented in such a way uh, that all my misconceptions about him were brought to the surface and I couldn't resist. And so I kept on coming back and back and back. Um, but slowly but, sure, and slowly but surely, I, I sort of became more and more convinced. And then, as I went, there was this... It stopped being a triple threat. It started being a quadruple threat. Because, as I'd go to this church, they had stories. And this was the fourth threat. And these weren't stories from hundreds of years ago. These were stories happening at the time, all the time, as far as I could tell. After a few weeks, I heard this woman, um, this mother, come up at the front. And she was in floods of tears. She was absolutely distraught. Her teenage son had um, been diagnosed with meningitis. And the doctors had missed it. And so it was in late stages, and it was very serious. He was on life support in the A&E. And she was there, um, tears falling down her face, pleading with us, pray, please pray for my son. And the leaders of the church went to his bedside. They prayed for him there. Uh, the next week, she came back and said, it's got worse. Um, the doctors are basically saying the best case scenario here is permanent brain damage. That's the best case scenario. So she said to the church, please pray, will you fast? I had no idea what was going on. I was like, I'm just trying to work out this thing. But the church really took it seriously. And then the final third week, she came back with beaming face saying, my son is completely healed. The doctors do not know how this happened. They cannot explain it. He is completely healed. No brain damage, nothing. No lasting um, problems with this at all. I still am in contact with her and um, with the family. This is, I don't know, 15 years ago. How old am I? Yeah, 15, maybe 16 years ago. He's fine. Absolutely fine. No lasting damage at all. And it wasn't just this story. It was other stories. There was a girl who um, was healed of Crohn's disease. There was a girl who um, lost her voice because her vocal cords had collapsed because she'd been in a horrific um, a car accident, she was prayed for, she woke up in the middle of the night singing in tongues, um, able to, to make sounds again because people had been praying for her. And it was like there was story after story after story. There was a student who had grown up with um, the ventricles in her heart not forming properly. And so she was on a heart transplant list and had been for, 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 weeks and, uh, for years and years and years. And she used to have these um, heart murmurs where she, her heart would basically stop 
very scary. And then she would come back. So she was on this heart transplant list. She was prayed for. She went to her um, regular checkup, where they were trying to bump her up the list because it was getting more and more regular. They thought their MRI machine was broken because it showed a completely different heart. So they sent her to another hospital where they went through another MRI to see the actual heart was still, the machine wasn't broken. They said, you've basically got a new heart. This doesn't happen. This is weird. And she said, I just got prayed for. I knew I'd been healed. These stories, it was like this quadruple threat for me. I had nowhere to go. It's like, this is true. And this, actually, the Jesus that they talk about looks quite similar to the Jesus of the Gospels. And I didn't actually find it that extraordinary because I thought, well, this actually makes sense. If this is all true, then it's all going to be true, isn't it? That Jesus doesn't just teach, that he doesn't just die and resurrect, he also heals people. Surely this would be carrying on. Unless we get the whole Jesus we are going to always feel a little bit empty in our lives. We need every single part of him. So this week, we are concentrating on the Jesus who is Lord over all disease and all death. Do you believe? I know you do, but do you also believe? Our passage is basically of two stories sandwiched together. In the middle, there is this woman who had this bleeding issue for 12 years, and either side of it is the story of this 12-year-old girl who is suddenly sick and then dies. So on the one hand, the woman represents ongoing, chronic, my life is always going to be like this. Is this just my lot in life? Has God abandoned me? Am I just stuck with this thing, whatever it is? That's who she represents. And on the other hand, it's the sudden, out of the blue, who could have predicted 12 years of joy and wonder? Our only daughter is alive. Amazing. Look at the gift that God has given us. Only for one second, she's suddenly sick and on the point of death. Ongoing and sudden. And the message is, Jesus, though, is Lord over it all. Because everyone is eligible. You see, um, immediately preceding this passage, Jesus has come from uh, one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible, the, the Gerasene demoniac, who is, um, basically spends his time uh, being demonized uh, and shouting and screaming. And Jesus goes there. It's a Gentile area, and he sends this legion of demons into a herd of pigs who say, please don't um, send us into the abyss. So he sends them into pigs, and then they run over a cliff into the abyss. Same thing. Uh, so uh, Jesus has come back from there, and he's now crossed back over the Sea of Galilee, and he is back into Jewish heartland. And as Hannah was saying in her first talk, Luke is very keen to point out that Jesus is there for the outsider, for the Samaritan and the Gentile and the women, those whom society would normally dis despise, and this is no, um, uh, uh, no different. But there is a sense in which, well, what does that make for um, hardcore Jewish life? Is he actually abandoning us? And here Luke is saying, absolutely not, because he comes and he meets Jairus, who could not be any more orthodox in his beliefs, any more part of the establishment. He is a synagogue leader. So this is a Jewish man who spends his life studying the Torah and teaching the Torah. It's him who Jesus meets.
And when Jesus meets him, Jairus falls flat on the floor at his feet and says, please, please, I'm desperate. And we don't actually hear Jesus' response. All we cut to is that he's on his way. He is going there. Because Jesus sees this faith and he answers it. Because for Jesus, no one is eligible, is ineligible. No one is eligible. Jesus is only interested in no one. (laughs) Everyone's eligible. Every single person. Now, I hope this doesn't come as too much of a surprise for you. Um, I apologize if it does. But growing up in the UK, it was telling for me um, about who it was okay. It was actually totally socially acceptable to belittle. Now, I grew up in um, kind of liberal elite, uh, sort of urban, um, right on London. And it was a place that, uh, you know, um, there's lots of similar places here in, in the US where you sort of um, pride yourself on openness and tolerance. Everyone's okay. And uh, hopefully it goes without saying any sort of hint of racism um, would, would be, you know, uh, the worst thing possible, which obviously it is. Uh, but it was very much like, I'm going to wave this flag to make sure you know just how wonderfully liberal and brilliant I am. And also, because it was sort of um, a period in history before Brexit, uh, BCE, uh, whatever that is, um, before Brexit, we were all very European. Now, traditionally, British people, a little bit suspicious of the French, quite a lot suspicious of the Germans, but at this point of history, we were like... Europe is wonderful. We love Europe. Uh, They're so exotic and their trains run on time and all of this sort of stuff. And we kind of wanted to be European. But it was absolutely fine to belittle Americans. Americans. All of a sudden, you've gone very serious. (laughs) Absolutely fine to make fun of Americans. I'm sorry to let you... British people, we're awful. Um... Completely socially acceptable, always. Lump you all in together, Americans. Silly little Americans, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Having lived here for for a while, I've been thinking about this a lot. And it, it strikes me that actually this is what all of us do all the time. There's just some people who it's absolutely fine. In fact, it might even be encouraged. You can look down on them. You're superior to them, whoever it is. And yet, look at Jesus throughout, and particularly here. And he is the one who is superior. Let's not forget, if there's one person who could be superior over everyone else, including Americans, it would be Jesus. And yet, there is no even hint of superiority. He does not care. Jairus, the synagogue leader, or the Gentile demoniac, or the woman with the issue of blood who is ceremonially unclean, everyone is eligible to Jesus because all he is interested in is faith in him. Uh, There was a um, common understanding in the Jewish mindset at the time that if someone was sick, it was the cause of sin, either their own sin or the sin of their parents or the sin of their grandparents. This was something that happened because someone sinned. And in fact, Jesus confronts this in John 9. Uh, He meets a boy, uh, a man who's been born blind uh, or deaf, one of the two. And uh, his um, uh, 
disciples say to him, Rabbi, who sinned that this um, boy was born, uh, let's just find out, blind? Um, was it his parents or was it him? And Jesus' response is this, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus could not care less where the sickness comes from. He does not care where you've come from, what your skin color is, what your history is. He does not care. All he's interested in is, are you open to the works of God happening in and through you? So, do you believe? Do you actually want the works of God in you. It's tempting to think we do, and I include myself with this, but when we analyze our actual motives, what I often find is that it's not that I want the works of God to be displayed in me, I want the works of me to be displayed in me through God. He can do it, and then I'll be fine. Now, all our motives are always mixed. Just admit that to yourself, live with it for the rest of your life, it will always be like this. No one is ever completely pure in their motives. But Jairus has it right when he falls at Jesus' feet. This is worship, this is acknowledging the King of Kings. It's allowing him to be Lord. It's taking whatever we've got, however small, and just putting it in front of him and saying, you know what I'm like, you know I'm mixed in my motives, but here I am to allow you to be Lord again. It's confrontational, isn't it? Because we've been taught to be the arbiters of our own destiny. We've spent the whole of our lives being told that if you believe it, you can do it. You are the best one. You are brilliant. Uh, I was reading uh, in the room where coffee now is, is one of those things that says something like, um, uh, live intentionally. What does that mean? Like, intentionally go to the bathroom. Don't accidentally. Just live your whole life intentionally. But we've been taught it. We put it on our Instagram posts. You can do it. And yet the whole heart of the gospel is, no, you cannot. Not really. But he can. Let him. So it's confrontational. But we don't need to be scared. Because before everything... Jesus' compassion precedes it all. So we can relax because we're in safe hands. He loves you. Everyone is eligible, but compassion is integral. Verse 46. Someone touched me, says Jesus. I know that power has gone out of me, which sounds a bit like um, some sort of magic spell, that suddenly he's lost power. I think he's just... He's got all the power, but he just knows that some power has gone and he's still got all the power. He's not like, oh, someone took a bit of my power and now I'm a bit more susceptible to kryptonite or something like that. It's, he's not Superman. He just knows that power has gone because someone is after the power of Jesus to heal them. Verse 47, then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then Jesus said to her, daughter. The first word that Jesus says to this woman, ever. Daughter. She's trembling with fear. This woman would have spent 12 years 
having to announce her presence to every single person she ever met, lest they might accidentally touch her and then become ceremonially unclean. So for everyone, rather than having to go through the laborious process of cleansing themselves after any sort of interaction with her, they'd just leave her alone. For 12 years. Can you imagine what it would be like for the next 12 years of your life to not be touched? No kiss, no hand on the face, no hug, no touching of your shoulder. I am British, so I don't like tactile behavior in general. I find it very difficult to not have a lot of space in bed. I like to stretch out, don't come near me, I am sleeping. That's what I like. And yet, I know myself when I'm bereft of touch, or actually when I feel touch for a long time, suddenly life comes back into you. Imagine 12 years till 2034. I'll be 34 years old in 2034. <laughs> what will it be like? Um, Hannah and I went to, um, we started going to therapy when we were living in London just before we moved here. I'd never been to therapy before. Uh, in Britain, you don't go to therapy. You just grin and bear it. Uh, so I'd gone. And um, the guy who was doing it was this slightly older man who was brilliant. He was absolutely brilliant. Very kind guy, but he knew his stuff. I was very like, well, I'm not sure about this, go on. Um, but quite soon after we started going, uh, it became clear that every session was going to be just about me. It, it was like we'd walk in and he would move his chair just to face me. <laughs> and I'd go, should we, should we, it's probably, probably Hannah's time now. Nope, it's you again. Uh, because basically, what was going on? I'd had all this, um, this experience of life, I won't go into, which was um, suppressing emotions. Uh, just don't feel anything, don't, particularly don't feel any of the negative emotions, or anger or sadness, or those things that aren't good for you, so just squish them down. Uh, but it wasn't going too well for me. So um, we spent a lot of time, um, him just helping me get in touch and express my emotions. I hated it. I did not want to go back. It was like going to the dentist. But every time, it was like, this is incredible. But often, I was quite moved uh, uh, during it. And I felt um, quite unsafe, because it was all so new to me. But this guy um, would lean forward now and again, when he could see I was particularly um, having trouble. And he'd just lean forward, and he'd look me in the eye, and he'd just touch my foot. And he'd say, you're doing great. And it was like, I would just burst into tears. Just touch my foot. Because this is the power of touch. This is the power of compassion. And before everything else, Jesus has compassion. He says to her, daughter. The most intimate word that a rabbi could speak to a woman. Daughter. In that moment, the, the love must have just flooded through her body. Imagine that. Not only am I healed, but I'm also accepted and I'm seen and I was terrified and he's telling me not to be afraid that I can go in peace. Some people 
here just really do need to know that Jesus loves them. I know that that is so simple. But that they need to know that he sees you. That he knows your name. And that he loves you for who you are. Particularly that he can heal any deficient experiences or lack of love that have happened in your life. These things we carry with us. The antidote is Jesus' love flowing through us so that we will be healed, so that we can actually stand up tall and go, I am his child. He calls me son. He calls me daughter. The antidote to anxiety is not courage or bravery. Be more brave. Be fearless. The antidote to anxiety, the anxiety that you may feel, is love. Jesus does not say, perfect courage casts out all fear. Perfect bravery casts out all fear. He says perfect love casts out all fear. Because when we know we are loved, when we experience our love, we feel safe. When my kids are scared, my daughters are scared. Sometimes they have nightmares. Sometimes they don't want to jump off a rock. But I really think they should jump off it. It would be great fun. When they are scared, I do not tell them to be more brave. That just makes them more scared. Be more brave. Come on. I tell them I love them. I tell them it's okay, that they're safe. And when they feel safe, they know that it's going to be okay. The anxiety falls from their bodies. I love praying for, for my daughters when they can't sleep. It's so simple. I just ask Jesus to fill them with his love. They just go straight to sleep. Honestly, if you've got difficult kids, invite me around. I will get, it'll be a bit creepy. I'll just go into their room and pray for it. No. Because the antidote to anxiety is you knowing that your Father in heaven loves you. And his love flows through you. But that's not enough for Jesus. It's a lot, but it's not enough. And it shouldn't be enough for us. Because if it were enough, he'd just be saying, I love you, it's going to be okay. But you're going to stay kind of as you are. But I love you, so it's all right. It's not enough because he doesn't want us to stay as we are. He wants to change us. He wants to completely revolution our lives. He wants to take us from immaturity to maturity. He wants to sort out and redeem and restore the things in our lives that are holding us back. And for that, we're going to need something. And what that is, is faith. As we often say, faith is the magic with God. It's like the special powder that brings everything to life. I don't know what that special powder is. I just made that up. But it's the magic. Everyone is eligible. Compassion is integral. Faith is essential. Do you want to move on? Exercise faith. Now, Christian faith is not blind hope. It's not a wish and a prayer. This is probably not going to work out, but maybe, whoa. It's also not conjuring up faith in you. I love the American mindset, the puritanical kind of work hard and everything will be all right. But faith is not about trying hard. Like, I'm going to create it in me. Like, oh, I've got faith. Have you ever been with people who are praying, 
pretending that they really believe. I do this all the time, so pray with me. I really believe this is going to happen. I do. Like, I, you can't create faith like this. You don't work it up in you. Faith comes from a conviction about who Jesus is. When we see him and when we actually believe what he says, our faith grows. The more we see him be completely and utterly true and faithful, as Joe was talking about earlier and Annie was talking about in her prayer, as we see him be completely faithful, that is when our faith grows. So if you want your faith to grow, spend more time with Jesus, trusting him to be who he says he is. It always is a risk because it requires us sort of jumping off into the unknown. But it is based not on anything other than the Jesus who has been revealed to us and continues to reveal himself to us over and over again. So the more, it's like a muscle, as I'm sure you've heard, the more you exercise it, the bigger it grows. If you leave it, it goes flabby. Luke sets up a contrast here. The contrast is between the crowd and particularly the servant who comes from Jairus' house and Jairus and the woman. Both Jairus and the woman are models of faith. The crowd and this person is not. Now, Jairus doesn't really actually seem to have a lot of faith, and that's actually the point. He hasn't got a lot of faith. He's just desperate. He's got nowhere else to turn. Jesus loves that. If that is how small your faith is, kind of mustard seed size, then well done, you have more than enough. If you're just desperate, that's fine. That's enough. The woman has got a little bit more, but maybe not that much. She knows all she has to do is touch him because she's seen him do it. She's also desperate. She's fearful. But she's got enough to go, all I need to do is touch him because I am completely sure where the power is here. This is faith. Putting Jesus in his right place acknowledging our need of him, and exercising it, moving towards him, actually stepping out of our comfort zone. Imagine Jairus. He's a leader in the community. Most people are just not sure about this Jesus, particularly in his circle. They think he's a blasphemer. And yet, Jairus falls down at his knees. That's faith. You've got to move. They aren't trying to force God's hand. They aren't trying to tell him what to do. But they are believing he can do anything. And they most certainly are desperate. The crowd, though, are very different. They start full of expectation. Verse 40, they welcome him. They're expecting him. Oh, Jesus is back. I wonder what he's going to do next. But by the end, they are laughing at him. Verse 53. Full of expectation, to laughing at him, mocking him. Indeed, their faith has dribbled away to such a degree that he doesn't let them anywhere near the house. He just takes five people in with them. He can't be doing with such a lack of belief when he needs to raise this daughter from the dead. So what explains what has happened to the crowd? After all, they have just seen a woman healed. Surely their faith should be rising rather than dripping away. Well, the key to understanding this is a very little detail in Luke's Greek. I know you wanted to have a Greek word. Yes, it's me. Here comes a Greek word. In verse 42, we are told that the crowds are crushing in on Jesus. 
The word is sumpigno. Sumpigno. It literally means to choke. This word is used only three other times in the whole of the New Testament. It's used by Matthew when he is talking about the parable of the sower, when the weeds come up to choke the fledgling little plant. It's used by Mark in the parable of the sower, where the weeds are coming up to choke the fledgling little plant. And it's used by Luke in the parable of the sower, when the weeds are coming up to choke this fledgling little plant. That is the parable that directly precedes this little thing, and this is the only other time that choke is used. This is what Luke says in that parable. Jesus is speaking, and he says, The seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. The crowd are now choking Jesus with their worries and their riches and their pleasures and their lack of maturity. They've seen and heard the gospel. They've seen and heard Jesus do all these things. They are even expectant of what he might do. Maybe he's going to calm another storm. Perhaps he'll deliver another demon-possessed person. Maybe he will give me that Oscar. I can't wait. They're expectant, but they are not putting their faith in him. Their faith lies elsewhere in worries and riches and anxiety and a lack of maturity and actually setting their own agenda. Because it is, they miss everything that they were hoping to see. They miss a little daughter being raised from the dead. As you said, faith is the magic with God. And the more we are able, bearing in mind that we always have mixed motives, but the more we are able to transfer our faith from all the things that will never satisfy onto Jesus, the real living thing, the more our faith grows, the more we will see God do mighty works in and through us. The thing that unites all those stories I gave at the beginning of uh, the church that I became a Christian in was there was so much expectation People just expected things to happen because they saw things happening. Now, some of those people's lives were a total mess. Total mess. A number of them were very immature Christians. They'd just become Christians, in fact. But they matured very quickly because they were expectant for God to do things. What I feel God has been showing us, and I'm grateful for a number of people on the leadership team of the church, but Hannah and I have been talking about this for a while. What I feel like God has been saying to us is that um, he's calling us to mature. He's calling us to go beyond. I know for a number of people it has been hugely therapeutic to come to a church where you know, the, the pre-prescribed political agenda is not the thing that you have to sign up to in order to come to the church, where you can have questions, as Annie was saying earlier, where you can actually maybe deconstruct some things, but also construct them back up. I know, given what everything else is going on in evangelical church, the countrywide, this has been hugely therapeutic, and we will continue and always do that, because people have to find somewhere where they can feel safe to rebuild things. What I want to encourage us, though, is to go way beyond because Jesus doesn't want us to stay there. He wants to use us. He wants us to be filled 
so much with his love and his power that we extend his kingdom both in the lives of the people here and out there. So don't settle. Never settle. Go for more. That's what I feel like God has been doing and God has been showing us. And these two courses coming up, um, all joking aside, will be very important for that. I would do both if I were you, particularly mine. Um, Casey, would you mind, we were praying before the service and um, Casey felt like God was saying something to us. Um, I just wanted him to share that. Um, I also felt like I had a picture of what God was, was doing. And this is actually a picture that other people, that someone else, at, um, a previous church of mine had had. And um, I just saw it again in my mind's eye uh, today when we were praying. And it was like up in that little corner there. It was like um, a burst drain that was trickling from that corner coming down here. It was like a little trickle of water. Not hard to imagine in this building. Uh, but it was, it was trickling down. But as it trickled, it got stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. And before long, it was a huge sort of torrent flooding through this whole place. And what I felt God was saying was, I've begun something of my spirit but it, you, you wait and see what's more to come. A whole river of his spirit flowing through this place, taking everyone with it. That's what I feel like God is wanting to do for all of us. Casey, sorry, I had you stand up there for about 20 minutes. Okay. Uh, I had a picture earlier, and it was uh, people like crossing a river, uh, like back in the 1800s, like pioneers or whatever. And it was a picture of people holding these big trunks of all their stuff and trying to cross the river. And what I felt like God was saying was to, as the river was wading into the spirit or wading into the kingdom for the first time or maybe your return to it. Uh, and what I felt like God was saying was uh, leave the trunks behind. Uh, leave the old stuff behind that he's provided everything on the other side. Uh, all the goodness and everything that you need and it's okay to let go of those trunks. Thank you, Casey. I think that's what God wanted to say. People here particularly. Um, Joe, can I borrow you? This is Joe. Give Joe a round of applause. This might be Joe's third service, fourth service, third service. Um, I was just talking to Joe before the service. Uh, and um, Joe, just explain um, kind of uh, your experience at the end of the service on, on Sunday and how the week's been since. I get to hold it. I'm so sorry. It's like an affectation. It's just a weird thing, but I get to hold it. Perfect. So, yes, this is my third session, and I thought, like, um, I was sitting and watching you guys praying over people, and I was moved, and I was also impressed by the people that had the courage to come up here, and I was sitting there just very moved, but I didn't consider myself to be worthy enough. So I sat there a long time, and I, in my heart, um, I found out the Saturday before, so a week ago from yesterday, that a friend of mine killed himself. He had suffered his whole life with anxiety. And I hadn't spoken to him since, like, December. I went into my text. I just was thinking about him, and I called him on Saturday morning and went to, um, said the number's disconnected, and then I went online and there was his obituary, 34 years old, 
And so I just was like, I was feeling so much guilt, like, like I wasn't there for him, or I could have made a difference, or I've been building two businesses, and I've been really putting everything into those, and I just, so then I was just, I still waited, I still was like, no, other people have bigger things. And then I just saw the two of you over here, and I just, I'm like, Joe, if you can't have faith in this environment, then just, just come on. So it was just so gentle, and so I, I just say, if you are feeling moved, just get, get up, because I'm so glad I did, and they both, I got like a daily double. Like, I got, like, <laughs> and I felt like when we're talking about touch, like, I just was safe and it was very physical so stop being my mind it was so physically moving that it was therapy and and I literally felt like an allowance of this flow of energy that was very overwhelming and, and how's things been since like there's been a shift all week where I've had so much more space to actually be in my body and to see a thought float in, to physically feel it, and to just be like, cool. Because what I was doing is there'd be thoughts that came in that I didn't like, and then I would just wrestle with them and just get so tight. But now it's like, thank you, thank you, allow. So the flow, allow. And it may feel what we describe as uncomfortable, but if you kind of drop the description and just allow the physicality, and I've never experienced that in any setting like this. Well, that's the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is poured out for all of us, and he knows exactly what is going on with us. It's so moving to hear you speak so vulnerably and honestly. Thank you so much. Um, you're, you're great. We love you. Thank you, so Thank you Joe. So, the name of the game, really, is um, Jesus being Lord. And the Holy Spirit being the one in whose dimension of life we experience God and who directs our steps. We are, as we often say, like sieves. We leak we leak his presence. Often we don't realize how much we've lost until we come back into his presence and then we go, oh, this is who he is again. This is what he's like. This is how much he cares and loves for us. This is his power. But don't leak any longer. Open yourself to the spirit and allow him to fill you, like Joe did, with his courage. Leave behind those things that you do not need to cross the river into his presence, as Casey was talking about. Leave them behind and receive from him again. You do not know just how wonderful and all that he has for you can be. But it will be beyond anything that you would imagine. Such is the grace of God. Such is his goodness. Didn't say God so was so angry with the world that he sent his son, or God so wanted people to know just how amazing he was. He said, God so loved the world, because ultimately that's what 
He knows that you need the most. It requires faith. Be a person of faith. Should we stand?